scripture reading today will be Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I appreciate Randy Fry taking on the task of reading that long section. I wanted you to hear it all. Uh, it is what closes, whether it's the greatest chapter in Romans or in the New Testament or in the Bible is debatable, but it is a great and powerful statement. It begins with this phrase, what then are we to say about these things? And technically, you have to figure out what you're going to do before you start reading the rest of the passage. What is he summarizing here? In some ways, he could be summarizing everything from 27. And 27 is that statement, all things work together for those who love the Lord. And that's a possibility. We make that great proclamation, amen, that, that when we're with God, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, things will come together. And again, be sure you understand, it is not about my good, my earthly, the good that I think of in terms of, oh, I want more money, I want a better house, I want to, you know, I want to be skinnier, whatever the good may be. Whose good is this? God's good. Whose good is this, church? And so it could well be that that's all that he's referring back to. Except that when we read it, it's hard not to look broader than that. This almost seems to be a summary statement for everything at least through from chapter 5 till now. But I would actually say it kind of wants to sum everything up. From the introductory paragraph which goes through in chapter 1 through verse 18, he all points it all forward. And says, I, I'm looking at all that I've said. And all I can do is say, yes and hallelujah. Amen. And let's just very quickly kind of summarize what's gone on in this book. You may choose to write a different set of summaries. And I would love to hear your summaries. Uh, there are two things that affect my summaries. One, I want to get them in as small a space as possible. Somebody say, because I want to get them done as quickly as possible. Uh, and number two, I've, I'm the one who got to choose. So I'd love to engage with you in this conversation. The summary of the book. Everything that Romans is about is the idea 
that the righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel, and all we can do is say amen. It's an incredible conversation that Paul is having. Again, you always hear these questions back and forth, this conversation that Paul is having with, I don't think specific opponents, but just people that he has spoken to over the years. He wants to have a conversation with them and talk about the way God's salvation has been played out and what Jesus has done in the great proclamation of the gospel. That proclamation starts with wrath, and we've said this many times before. Chapter 118 through 318, the wrath of God revealed against Gentile and Jew alike. And we are all, there are no exceptions, and Paul would include himself. Without Christ, without the gospel, we are all trapped in sin. From there, he picks up and talks about the fact that God justifies those who live by faith. And that's a powerful, overarching kind of statement. So his grace is proved greater than sin. I would say that that's a statement that we all kind of have just kind of gotten used to. And yet it ought to be a huge hallelujah. That light overcomes darkness. Amen. And God's grace is bigger than sin. And while we can talk about this in cosmic and kind of global kinds of ways, we can also talk about it in a very individual and very unique to you kind of way. Because you know where sin has trapped you. But you can affirm in everything that you do, in how you respond. And by the way, not just respond to sins in the past, but failures in the present. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm always the best husband I ought to be. And I can either let that be the ruling and dominating tape voice in my head, or I can say, you know what? God's grace, as experienced through Sharon, is greater than my failures. And somebody says, you can say amen for me, but I happen to know that you need to say amen for you as well. And that's not about taking good care of Sharon. That's about whatever area of life that you find yourself in. Then as chapter 6 opens, we're going to talk about identity a lot here. In Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, sin, sin was put to death. And the law, the law that could not be fulfilled by our own kind of acts to be lawful, instead was fulfilled by Christ's death and resurrection. And that runs all the way into chapter 7. And then from 7-7 to 8-30, to where we are today, again, where our statement, what are we going to say in response to all this? Our new identity in Christ is victorious over sin as we are formed, not by being people who are somehow or another under the subjection of the rule of, of sin, and not even people that are necessarily holding up and saying, look how good I am at keeping God's law. Instead, we are victorious by the law of the Spirit. And we all say, Amen. In response, Paul will start this section and we go back to the courtroom. The, an, the original language here has all these words that are associated with a legal case. And so he asks these, and again, we've experienced this before. Uh, the, the lawyer will stand and make an objection to Paul's proclamation of the, of the salvation brought about by the gospel of Jesus. And here is just bullet fire. By the way, this is one of the reasons that I would point you all the way back when it says, when we hear all these things, how do we respond to all these things? We're pointing all the way back to chapter 1. 
because it has been these occasional statements that are, that are these, these objections, as it were, that the lawyer stands up and gives, and now it's just this bullet fire of these objections. First of all, in 831, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, what I need to let you know is that the objection language has changed here. Prior to this point, the objection language are the people who are objecting to Paul's proclamation of the gospel. They're saying, wait a minute, it can't just be this by grace through faith. Because where is the law? Or how about I just get sin even more so that God's grace can be even bigger? Here it switches. Because it is the prosecutor. It is the idea that Paul himself is stating these objections. Objections to any identity except our identity in the Spirit through Christ. Any way of living that might be different than the idea of living in the Spirit and in the law of the Spirit. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? In 8.33, the next question. Who will bring any charge against us? I, I love it. Uh, Randy and the words on the screen were both in the NIV. But there's been a recent update to the NIV, and Randy was reading the one that's in my Bible. There's been an update, and they put this statement in. Who, who can bring any charge against us? Is it Christ? That may be the next line. And then on the screen it said, no one. Because the question that is the statement about Jesus, again, in the original language it's a question. Take Jesus, for instance. Take Jesus, for instance, and how is he and what he has done any kind of a charge against us? And so the answer, naturally, is no. No one is there to condemn us because Christ is the one who intercedes for us. In 834, who is the one? Not just a charge. Get it? So now, who stands, Paul standing in the seat of the prosecutor, and you've got the the objectors over there, and then they, and he said, so who is it? Who is it that's against us? Who is it will bring, by the way, this should sound kind of legal, who is it will bring a charge? And finally, who is it will condemn you? And Paul continues, who's the one who condemns us? 835. There ought to be very few few statements in scripture that capture your heart like this one does. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now you kind of have to envision here a reflecting back on the gospel. You have to read the gospels and recognize all the places that Jesus went with the gospel. It was kind of interesting. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger. He was born in a in a feed trough in a stable on the backside of the little town that, you know, didn't carry all that much weight anywhere. And if you ever thought that who you were wasn't significant enough, then guess what? Jesus has walked right there with you. Jesus went to the waters of baptism. Jesus went into the houses of what was typically called sinners but what we recognize is even when the Pharisees aren't objecting, you're in the house of a sinner, Jesus is touching and healing and interacting with all the wrong sort of people. As a father, 
There was a time when Elise was dating. And there were concerns about don't want to date the wrong kind of person. Kind of deal like that. In fact, we had, she knew this. You've heard this before. If she wanted to go out with somebody, they had to come and meet me. There was a young man at church who thought that rule didn't apply to him because he was from church. I said, you were wrong. (laughs) But bottom line is, the people that Jesus hung around with, the people that Jesus broke bread with, and the people that Jesus would choose to touch, to lay hands on, were not the sort of people that you always wanted to say, hey, Elise, that'd be a great guy to date. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Jesus' love took him to Jerusalem in that fateful week. Jesus' love took him to the upper room in which he said, my body and my blood. Jesus' love pushed him into the most illegitimate courtroom, courtrooms that the world maybe has ever seen. Jesus' love laid his hand down on the cross. And it wasn't some enigmatic what. It wasn't a hammer and a nail. It was a person. It may have been two or three people. If you look at Mel Gibson's rendering of this scene, it's two or three people that are pulling his arm so that it's fully flexed and then placing the spike in the area that stretches the body absolutely the most. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? The answer over and over and over to all of these questions is always, say it with me please, no. No one, nothing, and never. It is an affirmation of God and an affirmation of Christ and an affirmation of His Spirit that He says no. In all these things we are more than conquerors who through Him who loved us. I'm not exactly sure how we become more than conquerors. But there are times in our life when we, when we kind of step into something and it, and it comes together in a way that it's almost like it's not our efforts that made it possible. But we kind of see the, everything coming to make our victory and our ability to accomplish things possible. And here it is that we are more than conquerors. And I think a big part of this language is the idea of not that you have a good enough sword hand and not that you have a strong enough shield and not that your shoes aren't fit well enough and your strength good enough. It is you are more than a conqueror because just like Israel when they crossed the Red Sea. I don't know if you ever noticed this or not, but they crossed the Red Sea to freedom But what happens in their aftermath? They defeat the most powerful army in the whole world without lifting a single finger. More than conquerors. And that is who we are in Christ and with the Spirit. So the yes is in and through and by the Spirit. Chapter 8 began with this idea that no, no, The life before baptism was a life where every time we intended to do something good, it always seemed like we couldn't accomplish the good that God wanted. But when we let go of that idea that somehow the good is going to be found in me, instead the good is in Christ, 
and I will take God and Christ's good into me in the indwelling of the Spirit, that when we hear this no, we recognize it is God's yes of the Spirit. I've been putting something similar to this up each week, that our yes in the Spirit is an affirmation that I'm not living to earn what Jesus has done for me. And it's so easy for us to get caught in that trap. That I can be good enough. I can get it right enough. I can somehow stack up all my good and it will earn what Christ has done. We'll never get there. Paul comes back to it over and over and again in the first eight chapters. Can't get there. Secondly, I'm living in response. I'm not living to earn. I'm living in response to what God has accomplished in me. And I will tell you that it is very difficult to live in the Spirit until that mindset, that shift of gears from the idea that what I do is about earning something that God has given and instead what I do in my life, the way I walk, the way I talk, the way I think is about responding to what God has accomplished. There may be very few switches in your life when you say, Spirit, come, that the Spirit wants to invade your heart and your mind and your soul so that your body can begin the process, your strength can begin the process of saying, I'm not going to do it to earn. I'm going to do it to say thank you. When you say no to the things that bring brokenness to the world, You're not earning something from God. You're saying, thank you, God, for the freedom to choose. When you choose to not act in hateful ways, but to act in the love that God gives, then you're not not saying, oh, look at me. I got this love thing down. Aren't I good? Instead, you're saying, thank you, God. Because you know what? It took more love for you to love me than for me to love anybody else on this earth. Amen? It is about saying thank you. I have the Spirit of God partnering with me in all things. I am never alone in the process of being who Jesus wants me to be and doing the things that God wants me to do. And maybe above all else, I don't know, I love that song, Sweet Seat Spirit. I kind of wonder, I put it on the list of suggested songs. And sometimes Randy just plugs them in before he reads through them. And I happen to know he doesn't like high notes very much. And so I'm not sure he read that song before. He said, oh, that'll be a good one. And I'm so glad he did. (laughs) Aren't you? Sweet expression on each face. Our worship, our time together, our ability to praise him. I don't know if you feel it every once in a while. And I realize that not all of you are into that idea of feeling something. And that's okay. Because I'm going to affirm the truth. The Spirit is with us in all things. The Spirit is filling our voices when we choose to take the lungs that God has given us. By the way, I've heard some of you at games. you got lungs. You can get with it. When you use those lungs to say, I'm going to sing a praise of loving God and His greatness and His holiness. But for those of you who are okay, comfortable with the idea, every once in a while, sitting there, The Spirit is moving. It's no longer my voice. It's no longer my lungs. It is something the Spirit has moved and made it greater. Amen? I am never alone in all things. And so finally, the yes of the Spirit. 
so that my identity can be, so that my identity can be all, can be Christ above all. And again, you say, yeah, 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 yeah. It'll all come together when God makes everything new, right? When, when we get to that heaven stuff, then it'll all be good. No, 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 no. My identity be, can be Christ above all now and in eternity. So how do we answer that yes in the spirit? How do we become a person whose identity is put squarely and completely on who God is and on who Christ is? Answering the yes in the spirit. When someone asks you who you are, you have lots of opportunities response, don't you? What the Spirit tells us is that when somebody asks who we are, we are God's child. Say that with me. Who are you? God's child. You see, it's a, a powerful thing. There's so many things that the world wants to put labels on us. By the way, one of the main ways that the world tries to use labels is to try and separate us. Try and put you over in that corner and me over in this corner. And there's particular effect in the idea of not only am I going to put you in your corner, but I'm going to make you feel even more isolated in your corner. There is no identifying marker greater than the marker that says, I am God's child. Now there's a how to that. Is how next, David? What's next? How is next? Hallelujah. I love it when it comes together. I am not God's child. Now, by the way, just want to real quickly say, every single person in all of creation that has ever lived or will ever live between first creation and new creation is a child of God. They don't exist except for the breath of God. Somebody say, amen. And, and if I were to make a quick statement, and that starts at conception in the womb. But the other half of the sentence is, who am I, needs to be defined by not an old self that was a slave to sin, but a new self that is a slave to righteousness and is, a, is indebted to Christ and is filled with the Spirit. I am God's child, and this is where the how comes in. Because this was a big debate in the church there at Rome. There were those Jews who said, we are God's children because we are related to Abraham. And Paul over and over and over again tries to affirm, and, and we're not done with his affirmation, the children of Abraham are children of faith. And faith leads us into a relationship with Christ. Amen? And that relationship with Christ will never be about how good I am. I've already mentioned this today, so I'm not going to build upon it a whole lot. I am God's child, and I am God's child because God has chosen to make me right with him. I am justified by Christ. I can make the case that while there is a process that will take place when God makes everything new, and, and, and all those who have died prior to that and all those who are still alive at that moment will go into and move into what might be called a glorified body. That is what scripture calls it. It is the same body that Jesus had after the resurrection. Okay? That's a change. 
That's a big change. Somebody say amen. Anybody get up sore this morning? No more. Anybody ever once in a while have something that kind of sticks you in the side and says, oh, wait a minute. The answer is no more. I'm looking for the day in new creation when I can understand everything that Kyle is saying because it's beautiful. But the thing I want to affirm is that the justification that comes through Christ has fitted me for heaven. I'm going to continue the process of transforming the outside part of me for the rest of my life. But right here and right now, and I don't understand it completely, but I am fully equipped in God's righteousness. I will be in no better standing with God on the day that Jesus comes back than I am right now. Because what Jesus has done for me through the cross and what God has chosen to do for me in making me right through him will not change between now and then. How can I be a child of God? It is because I am justified by Christ. And why is it? Why, right? No, what? Okay, that's all right. Who you are, child of Christ. What you are is a servant of Christ. This is the Spirit saying yes. Got some folks that have doctorate degrees that didn't just a couple of of weeks ago. We got some folks with master's degree and bachelor's degree. We got folks that are heading off into jobs. And they're thinking, oh, this is going to be good. I'm going to be able to do this thing, and I'm going to earn money, and people are going to pay me for doing something that I've gotten paid a lot of money to get this degree on and all those kinds of things. And I want to say to you, and by the way, I've been doing what I've been doing for the better part of 40 years in my life. We're coming up on it. Been ministry of some sort in different ways. But even the idea of being a staff minister, someone who's paid to be a youth minister, be an education minister, whatever it's been, be a preacher. Those are all informed by the idea that I am doing anything and everything about what I am, who I am and what I do, who I am as a child of Christ, God's child, and what I do is being a servant of Christ. So Samantha's got that civil engineering degree. And I'm not sure all the ways that moving earth and hydrology and all those kinds of things can be about being a servant to Christ, but I know Samantha well enough to know that she's figuring it out. We've got folks that are going to graduate from high school, and they're still figuring some things out every once in a while. But what I know is that if their vision changes from what can I go and get good money doing, and you know what, today in our economy it may not be what can I go get good money, what can I go and get a job in. But how can God equip me to be his servant in his places doing his good? To be a servant of Christ, and why? To be God's good. The Spirit says, yes, in our inner being, you are God's child. And by the way, there are going to be lots of voices that are going to say no, aren't there? 
but the Spirit says yes. The Spirit says how is because you've been justified. And too often, we'll get distracted with voices that say, I'm going to try to do, be good enough and earn this. The Spirit will say, what you're here to do is serve. And what the Spirit will continually remind you of is that you can be. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you put your trust in Him and allow the Spirit to live in you, that you are right now being God's good wherever you go and whatever you do. And that is a great calling. The statement is we are more than conquerors. Conquerors over the brokenness in our life. Conquerors over the brokenness in the world. Conquerors over the idea that sin and death somehow has the last word. We are more than conquerors. If you want to be involved in a conversation about how to make that a greater reality in your life or how to start that in your life, we would be excited to participate in that conversation with you. If you're online with us, there's a number on the screen, 979-217-3300, that you can send us a text and that will start a conversation and we welcome you to that conversation. But I want the last words today to be God's words through his servant Paul that he shaped nearly 2,000 years ago. So stand for God's invitation and we'll sing a song immediately following it. Picking up in verse 29. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines of the life of his son. The sun stands firm in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. And after God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. So why do you think, with God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he won't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think that anyone is going to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Deep on the evil.